This evening I'd like to talk about gladdening the mind. And I'd like to begin with a poem which is called So Much Happiness. It's difficult to know what to do with so much happiness. With sadness there's something to rub against, a wound to tend with lotion and cloth. When the world falls in around you, you have pieces to pick up, something to hold in your hands like ticket stubs or change. But happiness floats. It doesn't need you to hold it down. It doesn't need anything. Happiness lands on the roof of the next house singing and disappears when it wants to. You are happy either way. Even the fact that you once lived in a peaceful treehouse and now live over a quarry of noise and dust cannot make you unhappy. Everything has a life of its own. It too could wake up filled with possibilities of coffee cake and ripe peaches and love even the floor which needs to be swept, the soiled linens and scratched records. Since there's no place large enough to contain so much happiness, you shrug, you raise your hands, and it flows out of you into everything you touch. You are not responsible. You take no credit, as the night sky takes no credit for the moon, but continues to hold it and share it, and in that way be known. The contented heart is probably the most rare and the most precious gift we can find in our life. Sometimes it seems so hard to find the contented heart. And yet when we glimpse it, it can feel like our whole world fills with ease. The discontented heart we mostly experience when we're heroically striving to be something we are not or to have something we do not have. Happiness and contentment, I think, are often no further away from us than the next breath, than knowing what it means to open our heart that we're in, to the moment that we're in. And knowing how to release this terrible striving. Life does not have to be perfect for us to find peace. Our minds and our bodies, our hearts, do not have to be perfect for us to be contented. Our meditation certainly doesn't have to be perfect. But happiness and contentment do ask us to give up covetousness, resistance, and fear. Siddhartha, the Prince Siddhartha, as a young man, he tried so hard as an ascetic to transcend this imperfect world, a very long, severe aversion attack. And there came a point when, you know, almost starved, after was abusing his body, trying so hard to have something he did not have, 
There came a point when he remembered as a boy sitting on a hillside and looking down over a field, watching a farmer plow that field. And he remembered knowing in that moment this sublime sense of contentment, of ease, of happiness. And that memory became a kind of signpost of the path that he needed to follow. I think we have probably all had those surprising moments in our life when in the midst of struggling and striving and wrestling with things, we suddenly seem to stumble across a moment when everything just feels so filled with ease and that everything in that moment is complete. There is enough. These first days of a retreat, I think, are often very difficult days because we meet directly all that seems so imperfect at times. And there's nowhere to hide. There's nowhere to hide from our bodies. There's nowhere to hide from our minds and our hearts. There's nowhere to hide from what's happening in our meditation. And I think sometimes in those difficult days, you know, our minds, our hearts can close a little, can contract a little. And we tell ourselves that all the stories we've heard about how impossible meditation is, all our suspicions about this path being grim and somber and depressing, we're sure they're all true. (laughs) The Buddha never taught that this is a path of misery that leads to ultimate misery. (laughs) He taught this is a path of happiness that leads to the highest happiness. Now, contrary to what we may believe at times, the Buddha spoke so often of joy and contentment, of the gladdened heart, of the heart of gladness. He spoke of the happiness that is born of the collected mind, of the calm heart. spoke of the happiness, the gladness that is born of concentration, of seclusion, of letting go. Spoke of the, speaks of the very profound happiness and contentment that are born of loving kindness, of compassion, of appreciative joy, of equanimity. And spoke so often of the joy of the liberated heart. I think we hear this and we respond to this, but we are often tend to be kind of dualistic in our understanding. I think sometimes there is this belief system that, you know, first we have to suffer so that later we can be happy or that first we have to struggle so that later at some mysterious point in our practice, this struggle is going to turn into contentment. Personally, I would suggest that it's much more helpful to ask of ourselves what it means 
for us to have our practice unfold in a climate of happiness? What do we need to cultivate for us to really discover and rest in the gladness of mind? I would encourage you to take as a koan or as a reflection this instruction, this encouragement of the Buddha when he said, in the mind of happiness, attention finds a true foundation. In the mind of happiness, attention finds a true foundation. Now in the practice we've begun to explore here. Wise attention is really placed at the beginning and it's really placed in the center of a path of deepening. In fact, it's understood that profound happiness, profound transformation and insight are born of a heart that is calm and still. That compassion our capacity to reach out and embrace sorrow is also born of stillness and receptivity. I think we all know in our own experience that the times when we may be most deeply touched in our life, times of intimacy, of connectedness, of love, these are the moments when we've been most wholeheartedly present and attentive. So these days we've begun, breath by breath, step by step, moment by moment, to cultivate that capacity to be present and attentive. And as we do this, I think it's very helpful to really stay close to that reflection that wise attention grows in a climate of happiness. Now, probably one of the things you've noticed over this first couple of days is that there seems to be a kind of almost intrinsic tension in developing wise attention. Because first, we're often meeting a mind that seemingly does not want to be here, does not want to be present. Now, this is not news to us. First of all, this is a tension we encounter so often in our life, isn't it? This mind that doesn't want to be here. The mind, the heart that doesn't want to be present. One of the things we see is that, of course, we're happy to pay attention to everything that's pleasant. If you go outside and watch a sunset, or if we showed a movie, or played some music, or, you know, you have a nice lunch, person we love, we're there. We don't ever want to be somewhere else. If in your meditation today you'd experienced endless rapture, profound insight, (laughs) uplifting experiences, you'd probably be glued to the cushion. Hmm? We'd have to shovel you out of the meditation room. We also know that, notice that we pay attention to the unpleasant, to the painful and the difficult, only if there's absolutely no other alternative. 
if we have exhausted all of our strategies to avoid it or to distract ourselves or to resist it. And we see in our life and in our practice that when something's neutral, and there is a lot of that in life, mostly our attention just slides away. We're bored, we dismiss it. So here is the first tension. We might say the first insight of our practice is to know the difference between this kind of attention that in some traditions is called childlike concentration, in that it's absolutely captured by the pleasant, you know, um, or just really kind of avoiding of the unpleasant. In some traditions, this is called a childlike concentration. So to know the difference between this kind of attention and what is wise attention, which I think could be defined simply as the attending to all things with equal respect. Meeting the unpleasant, the pleasant, the neutral, equally. Are we willing to do that? I think that's the real question. Mostly we see that often we're not. We find it hard to be willing to do that. And to be willing to meet all things equally with wise attention. I think this change of attitude, which involves considerable insight, is really what determines whether this tension that's involved in developing wise attention, it determines whether that tension is going to be negative and exhausting or whether it's going to be creative. The willingness to meet all things equally. Now, forcing never creates wise attention. It only ever creates more tension and more contraction. It's in a deep sense of ease and interest and investigation and happiness. All of that is what allows wise attention to unfold. So we have our breathing. Mindful of breathing in the service of wise attention and in the service of insight, not in the service of the breather. Within the body of our breath, we explore what it means to gather and to collect ourselves, to be awake. And within the body of this breathing, we also explore what it means to gladden our mind, to gladden our heart. So this evening I'd like to look at some of the building blocks of gladness, of this gladdened heart. The first of these building blocks, I think, is generosity. In this tradition, this teaching, Generosity is taught as being the cornerstone in the heart of a meditative life. And, you know, there are different dimensions of generosity, material generosity, but I think also the gift of fearlessness and the gift of the Dharma. Now, all teachings of generosity have at their heart the willingness to let go, the willingness not to hold on to anything, 
as me, as mine, as what I am, as who I am. This is the heart of generosity. Now, I don't think this is a surprise to us because I think we experience very directly for ourselves. Look at today. When we hold on to anything at all, a thought, a sensation, a fear, a plan, a goal, when we hold on to anything at all, the result is almost automatic, isn't it? We don't feel easeful and glad and happy. The result is almost automatic. The result is contractedness and tightness. And I think it's really important to know that very directly in our own experience so that we really deeply understand that we let go out of generosity for our own well-being, that we learn to let go out of kindness and compassion. And letting go in truth gladdens our lives and it gladdens our hearts. So how are we generous to ourselves here? Well, there is a deluded generosity. There's a kind of deluded generosity that says, you know, oh, you know, I'm bored. I think I'll go check my phone messages. I'm being kind to myself. (laughs) Or we think, oh, you know, I'm a little discontented. I wonder if they do take out pizzas to IMS, you know. (laughs) This is deluded generosity. You know, or I'm a little restless, you know, maybe I'll go and sit, you know, pull that book out of my suitcase. This is deluded generosity because what is it feeding? It's feeding the patterns that most contract us. It's feeding the patterns of disconnection, of alienation. The greatest generosity is actually to find the willingness to let go of discontent. The discontent that is rooted in that heroic struggle to be someone that we are not in this moment. To have something we do not have. An experience, a kind of meditation, a particular kind of person. That is huge generosity, to let go of that discontent. So we learn, actually, what it means to be contented with, at peace with, agitation, with grumpiness, with the resisting mind. The Tibetans tell a story of a very wealthy king who had so much more than he could ever possibly need. But the great sickness, the great dilemma, the great suffering of this king, he could never appreciate anything. He could never enjoy what he had. He could never resist at rest with what he had. Instead, he was always coveting what he didn't have. He was always coveting his neighbor's property, his neighbor's um, fame, his neighbor's, uh, you know, kingdoms. Now, as unlikely as it might seem, the name of this king was King Hard to Please. (laughs) It's something that always makes me smile, and it's something that I I love to take into my own life, you know, miss hard to please. You know, when I find myself surrounded by so much that is so rich and so wonderful, 
And, you know, still that grumbling mind is arising that says, but, but, you know, there's still this one thing that's not happening. Miss Hard to Please, you know, and there she is again. I think we, we meet her often in our light. And we certainly meet Miss Hard to Please on a retreat. In a, <laughs> the difficulty we have sometimes, the refusal we experience to be with discomfort. Perhaps we come here, maybe we expected the Hilton. You get a meditation room in a state of construction, a foam slab on the floor, you know. Perhaps we come here, we expected bliss. We've got a wayward mind. Now, can you imagine this person, this ideal person, this no longer Miss Hard to Please, this person who has always loving thoughts, a, a body that's always delightful and never ages, you know, always surrounded by people who flatter them, only uplifting emotions and fabulous meditations. You know, I've never met this person. And I don't believe in the whole history of humankind that person has ever existed. And I am really sure that we will not be the first. So meeting this imperfect world, inwardly and outwardly, here we are asked to really understand what contentment is, which doesn't mean passivity or depression or resignation. What does it mean to know that inner sense of ease in an imperfect world? It's not the fact that we don't get what we want, that we aren't always who we want to be that contracts us and make it struggle, makes us struggle. It is the wanting and the demand that contracts us and makes us struggle. And this is where we learn to let go out of generosity for our own well-being. We let go of this hungry creature out of kindness. There's something that Kabir wrote. He said, I said to this wanting creature inside me, what is this river you want to cross? Do you believe that there is some place that will make the heart less thirsty? In that great absence, you will find nothing. Enter into your own body. There you have a place to rest. Throw away the thoughts of imaginary things and stand firm in that which you are. Generosity in our practice is letting go of preoccupation, obsessing endlessly about how things should be. The Tibetan Lama says preoccupations do not end until the day that we die, but they end when we put them down. That is their nature. There is so much that we can think and worry about. So much we can plan for, so much we can regret, so much we can obsess about. And really, does much of that activity really make any difference at all? Does it enable skillful action and skillful response, or is it sometimes a habit? I think of obsession as like chewing stale gum. 
you know, you got a piece of gum, you know, and you chewed and you chewed and you chewed, and all the flavor's gone, and your jaws are still chomping away, and you got this piece of gum still in your mouth, and you get so tired, your jaws. And sometimes, you know, a sane person would just take the gum out, right? It's like, enough already. Enough already. You know, the gum's offered you everything it's ever going to offer. And one more chomp is not going to squeeze any more flavor out of this old piece of gum in your mouth. It's a habit. It's a habit. And I think sometimes we don't see the suffering of that habit. Sometimes we sometimes hold this weird hope that just one more chomp is going to squeeze that inside out. And it doesn't. It just tires us and exhausts us. And I think we can see that when we're caught in those loops, oh, gladness just has flown out the window. Because there's this undercurrent of anxiety and business and busyness. So with generosity and out of kindness and compassion, we learn to put those preoccupations down again and again. A thousand times. It doesn't matter how many times. Each time we are learning to lighten the load, to lighten the burden that we can carry so much in our life. We come back to breathe just one breath. And I think in doing that with willingness and generosity, we can begin to taste gladness. Generosity is also often the gift of fearlessness, a refuge to those who have no place of safety, protection to those who have none, to be a friend to someone who has no companion. Generosity can mean taking the small creature out of harm's way. It can mean challenging injustice. This gift of fearlessness is something we also offer to ourselves. I think it's not hard for us to see that aversion and fear are the proximate causes of disconnection in our life that aversion and fear lead us to disconnect. We look at this, we see this, and I think in truth there is so much that we can turn away from in ourselves. All the thoughts and the emotions, the experiences that we condemn or dismiss or reject in ourselves, all the ways that we deem ourselves to be unworthy or unacceptable, I think we can do this so often that actually we forget what it means to be a friend to ourselves. That we forget what it means to protect ourselves and to be a refuge to ourselves. So cultivating non-abandonment is actually offering the generosity, the gift of fearlessness to ourselves. And this is something we practice It's not just a fine theory. How do we offer that gift of fearlessness to ourselves? We offer it by being willing to meet and to embrace whatever appears in this moment. Whatever sound arises, that wandering thought, that one breath, our shuffling neighbor, 
we find the willingness to embrace them all with a heart and mind of respect. It says this too is worthy of our attention. And in that, we do start to find a gladness of heart in that generosity. I read something, someone said, it said, the world is full of choices, but sometimes the only choice we have is that the attitude we are going to bring. Mudita, or appreciative joy, is another of the threads in the fabric of gladness. In fact, in Pali, the word mudita, the Pali word mudita, is translated as a heart of gladness. This is Zen saying that says, although I am, I am in Kyoto when the cuckoo sings, I long to be in Kyoto. I, my experience is that um, too many of us in meditation don't have enough of appreciative joy. You know that we, we have, uh, sometimes we have lots of concentration and, and we can have lots of insight and we can have lots of struggle. We don't always have enough appreciative joy. And, and you might hear me saying that and saying, well, what have I got to have appreciative joy about today, you know? My knees are hard, you know, my mind's been so crazy. What is there to feel joyful about? Well, guess what? You're still here. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that just amazing? I know that some of, many of you are sitting with bodies that hurt, with difficult life experiences, with illnesses, with, with, with conflicts that need to be understood, and you're still here. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that something to appreciate? Your willingness to come back to this cushion, to this moment? Isn't that something to appreciate, that, that willingness to, that, to find that courage and that fearlessness to be with what is? Appreciative joy is learning to delight in all that is well, in all that is lovely, in all that makes our hearts sing. Appreciative joy is learning to welcome this aching back, this wayward mind. This, you know, when we're in the midst of frustration and disappointment and doubt and endless busyness, we are sure we are far from Kyoto. But the more indignant we become, the more insulted we feel, the more tight and contracted do we find ourselves. It's so easy in our lives and in our practice to focus only on that which is broken in ourselves, to focus only on that which is flawed and imperfect inwardly and outwardly. And when we do that, gladness feels so far away and it's replaced with contractedness. And we see that when we do focus only on that which is broken and imperfect, how quickly we become aversive, we become judgmental, comparing, and almost suffocate the gladness that might be possible for us. For sure, that which is broken needs attention, it needs our care, and needs our compassion. But there needs to be also a place for goodwill, for gratitude, for sincerity, 
to allow ourselves to feel the joy. All of these are part of mudita, part of appreciation. My own experience is that nature is a great ally in cultivating a heart of gladness. To allow ourselves here too, you know, it's not a meditative sin, to allow ourselves to delight in all the small miracles and moments of life to, and, and the beauty that is around us, to allow our hearts to be touched by you know, the, the buds that are beginning to appear on the trees as spring slowly comes, <laughs> to allow our hearts to be touched by just that sight of those great trees, of the birds' flight in the sky, of the sound of the wind, to take the time in your day to see and to listen wholeheartedly and to really see that when we do that, how our attention illuminates our, our world, that wise attention opens often the closed doors of our heart that allows us to be touched. This is not a sacrifice of mindfulness. Mindfulness practice, the path of awakening, is certainly stepping out of this conventional belief that our happiness, our gladness, depends on someone or something making us happy. It is really stepping out of this belief and the suffering that comes with this externalization of happiness and joy and well-being to understand that what we do in this practice is that we awaken our capacity to be delighted. We awaken our capacity to be delighted. And when we do this, we discover gladness of heart. And awakening our capacity to be delighted is born of wholehearted attentiveness that allows us to kind of sometimes just celebrate the blessings of the moment. I remember a few years ago I was teaching with one of my dear colleagues and, and I'd had to drive to, to the center to start teaching. And it hadn't really, things really hadn't gone well that morning. And I arrived and I was kind of grumpy and Fred looked at me and saw it immediately. You know, I was a kind of grumpy. And he, he said, well, you know, did you wake up healthy this morning, still breathing? I said, yeah, you know. Did you have some good breakfast? Yeah, it was fine, you know. Did you drive safely? You didn't have any accidents on the way here? You had some warm clothes to wear? You know, he came into, come to the retreat. Look, all the yogis are still here. And he was going through this list, and I found myself feeling happier and happier by the moment. You know, it was just that mind was so closed. It just couldn't even sense all that was well, all that was lovely. I think there is a place for making appreciative joy, mudita, really part of our day, to notice what is well. Certainly the world is not perfect. But our capacity to meet and bear the imperfect is made much easier by our willingness to soften, to relax, to release the demands that life must be other than it is, 
to release the demands that we must be other than who we are in this moment. Because we really see that when our heart is closed, it is like the world is closed to us. When we're not seeing fully, openly, there's almost nothing that can touch us. We see that when our mind, our heart is weary and tired, everything looks dark and tired. And the aliveness and the loveliness and the love that we long for begins by enlivening our own hearts. And our hearts are enlivened by the wholeheartedness of our attention. Rumi once said, Today, like every other day, we wake up empty and frightened. Don't open the door to the study and begin reading, take down a musical instrument. Let the beauty we love be what we do. There are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground. Let the beauty we love be what we do. Another of the great allies of gladness is the cultivation of spaciousness. Now, I know some people say that when we use this word spaciousness, they feel a little puzzled, you know, like... What does that mean to be spacious? What does it mean to have a spacious mind? I mean, we know what it looks like to be spacey. (laughs) You know, that sort of disconnected, dull, wandering mind. But that is not what is meant by spaciousness. I read something by one of Ajahn Sumedho's monks who, who said that when Ajahn Chah was dying, he decided to go to Thailand to really have this one last meeting with Ajahn Chan, and he hoped to get some really special teaching that was going to last long after the Ajahn had died. And when he got there, Ajahn, you know, he kind of begged for this special teaching. And Ajahn Chah said to him, he said, learn to know the difference between the mind and the activities of the mind. Learn to know the difference between the mind and the activities of the mind. Learn to know the difference between the heart and the activities of the heart. And he said when Ajahn Chah said this, first he felt really disappointed and he didn't have an idea what he was talking about. But then he began to understand the depth of that teaching. One way of describing this or understanding this teaching of spaciousness is like when you walk into this room, probably mostly we find that our attention is drawn to all of the things that are in the room. You know, the people, the cushions, the the walls, the Buddha statues. We tend to notice all of the things that are here inside this room, the content. Now, we could make a little shift and walk into this room and just look at, notice the space in the room. Notice the space around everybody. Notice the space around our bodies. And notice that space is actually what holds everything in this room. 
It holds you and me and the cushions and the chairs. And the space in this room actually doesn't depend upon getting rid of anything at all. You know, we don't have to take everything out for that space to be there. The space in the room doesn't deny the right of things to be there. And the space in the room doesn't actually lay claim to anything. It doesn't say, you know, my cushions, my chairs. Now, when we come in the, the, uh, come in the room and just look at the things in the room, they, we can get excited about them, you know. Oh, nice chairs, you know. Oh, we might get aversive about them, you know, pretty crummy lights, you know. Um, we might like them, we might dislike them. But the space is actually pretty calm, isn't it? It's pretty still. doesn't really have any preferences. And it's really what makes it possible for everything to be here. In fact, the space of the room is what accommodates everything. Now, another experiment of this is with listening. Hmm? Listen wholeheartedly in the day to all the sounds that arise. Sometimes there's many, sometimes there's few, sometimes they're lovely, sometimes they're not so lovely. But we tend to get drawn to the sound. But we can also notice the silence between the sounds and around the sounds. And really notice how the sounds actually emerge from that silence and they fall back into the silence. Now the sounds actually don't deny the silence. The, silence can, the sounds can be delightful, they can delight us or they can repel us. But the silence is actually pretty calm and pretty still and pretty spacious. We can actually learn to notice the space around thoughts, around people. Noticing this actually offers us a very different way of holding everything that appears in this space. There is actually space in our mind, spaciousness in our mind, The spacious mind actually has room for everything. And it's unshaken by what appears. The contracted mind always feels too full and too overflowing. So we learn to notice the difference between the mind and the activities of the mind. The mind has thoughts. It's not a problem. It has images, memories, plans. It's not a problem. But we can learn to receive them from the place of spaciousness, of knowing, too, that they arise and they pass away out of that spaciousness. We tend to get mesmerized by everything that appears. And spaciousness is much more subtle. It actually needs our attention. You know, spaciousness is not dramatic, like a gripping pain or a really traumatic thought. Spaciousness is much more subtle. To notice the spaciousness, we need to step back a little and to contemplate it. We need to calm down a little and know that it's always here. Spaciousness is always here. The waterfall of our thinking, every single thought, every sound, every thought, every memory, every image, they arise and they pass in that spaciousness. Now in our practice, I think we always need to find this balance, this marriage of spaciousness and focus. In fact, I think this is the great art of meditation. 
is to find that marriage of spaciousness and focus. Because we see when there's focus, without spaciousness, we tend to get tight or contracted. When there's spaciousness without attention, we tend to get spacey. So that is where we learn to find the balance. And our breath, our body, listening, they are all allies. They're not ways to exclude or defend against anything. But notice what happens between the sounds, between the thoughts. See what happens when some of them just fall back into spaciousness. In Zen, there's that wonderful saying that says, when your mind is not clouded by the unnecessary things, this is the best season of your life. The breath is an ally in reminding us to see and not be lost in the unnecessary things. The unnecessary things are not the thoughts. The unnecessary things are all the layers of agitation and resistance and guilt and blame and judgment that we layer upon what is. The unnecessary things is this heroic struggle to be someone we are not in this moment, to have what we do not have. The unnecessary things are what obscures contentment. Gladness of heart is something that is no further away from us than the next breath. Learning to appreciate, learning to celebrate, learning to welcome, learning to be wholehearted, awakening our capacity to be delighted, then we can embrace this whole world, which is often flawed and imperfect, without being shaken. There's something to end with I'd like to read you, written by Oliver Sacks, Sacks as he was recovering from an injury. And he, he wrote it, and he called it One Vast Hymn. He said, after breakfast, I wandered out. It was a particularly glorious September morning. I settled myself on a stone seat with a large view in all directions and filled and lit my pipe. This was new, or at least an almost forgotten experience. I'd never had the leisure to light a pipe before, or not, it seemed to me, for 14 years at least. Now suddenly I had an immense sense of leisure, an unhurriedness, a freedom I'd almost forgotten, but which now it had returned seemed the most precious thing in life. There was an intense sense of stillness, peacefulness, joy, a pure delight in the now, freed from drive or desire. I was intensely conscious of each leaf, autumn tinted on the ground, intensely conscious of the Eden around me. The world was motionless, frozen, everything concentrated in an intensity of sheer being. Now on this morning, as though on the first morning of creation, I felt like Adam beholding a new world with wonder. I had not known or had forgotten that there could be such beauty, such completeness in every moment. I had no sense at all of moments, of the serial, only of the perfection and beauty of the timeless now. Have just a moment, quietly. 